Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. I'm Milena Rice. I'm a PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study astrophysical explosions and their local environments. This is our first episode of Season 3. We turn three years old, break out the cake. Yeah. Almost toddlers. toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> when do you learn how to walk? I don't know. Like one? Before three, for sure. Well. <laughs> when did you learn how to walk, Melina? Yikes. <laughs> You're listening to episode 40, Space Summer Surprise. And oh boy, do we have some good surprises today. <laughs> In this episode, we will feature a special guest, two astrobytes that seem to have nothing to do with each other. Surprise! <laughs> and a fun little game. It's been a little while since we've done some podcasting, so we're going to ease our way back into it. So first, let's talk about what we did this summer using two truths and a lie. I'll go first. Ready? Ready. Yeah, so ready. One. I visited the birthplace of President Martin Van Buren. <laughs> Love where this is going. Two, I did a TV interview. Ooh. Okay. Three, I walked 12 miles on the beach. I'm going to go with one being wrong because I feel like you could have just like, you could have actually visited the birthplace of like Abraham Lincoln and then you were like, I'll just put in a different person to make it a lie. I'm going to guess three is wrong. <laughs> But it was close to 12. It was like nine miles or something. <laughs> <laughs> Milena pretty much nailed this one. Dang it. I actually visited the birthplace of President Calvin Coolidge up in Vermont. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually, despite the fact that he was kind of a bland and unpopular president, and he was born in a town of like 12 people, the museum and the grounds are spectacular. They're maintained incredibly well. The buildings are really well preserved. Mm. And the museum is like weirdly great for a very boring president. So if you happen to be in Vermont in the summer and you want to go check it out, really worth it. I've been meaning to go to Vermont. It's one of the few states in this area that I've just never had any reason to go to. And I've been thinking about it because also I think we have zero downloads for Astro Soundbites from Vermont. So I was like, I should go there and <gasps> Do just some download door to door. <laughs> so, oh. Yeah. We've got to get Start that knocking out. on all the doors. Yeah, yeah. Like, hello, would you like to learn about astronomy research? We could record an episode in the field. They did have lots of fields there. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm stoked. Vermont trip. Melina, you're up next. Two truths and a lie. Okay. Number one. I started doing a lot of weightlifting and can now bench my own weight. Nice. Number two is I reached the nirvana of work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> and number three is I went bioluminescent kayaking and learned about astrology under the stars. Hmm. Number two, 
number two. Call it BS on number two. There is no such thing as nirvana of work-life balance. Uh, <laughs> it just can't be done. You're applying to postdocs okay. this fall. I, it I'm can't not be done. It. Before we started recording this episode, I was saying how, how this is subjective and it's up to whether I believe it's true. And I actually think number two is true because I've ah. weirdly been spending so much time with people and like really being more devoted to connecting with people, but also have been doing all my postdoc apps and working a lot. So I might be going a little bit insane, but I feel like I also have much better work-life balance than before. So number one was false. So I can't bench my own weight, ah. but I have been lifting. <laughs> All right, now it's my turn. Yep. Number one, I went to a rooftop pool party with a group of financial analysts from France. Number two, I got a small tattoo of an octopus on my shoulder. And number three, I did a 62-mile bike race and am training for a few hundred milers this fall. I would straight up believe any of those. Yeah, these are good. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm gonna say the octopus one because I haven't seen anything on Instagram about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go for the bike race. You're a runner, not a biker. Mm-mm-mm. So Melena got it. I do not have any tattoos. Damn. No immediate plans to get any tattoos. So you are a biker as well. Yeah, I uh, I have a friend who's really into biking, and as soon as I finished my marathon, I promised him that i would scale up on nice biking so we've been training a lot recently did you learn about stocks from the financial analysts i didn't but <laughs> i ate a lot of food and i did a lot of swimming with them that sounds good yeah that's a nice time it was a very nice time <laughs> all right two truths and a lie we learned some things didn't we we learned that truth is subjective <laughs> Hey, well, okay, when can you ever say you've reached the nirvana of work-life balance? Right now, apparently. Right now. I've decided now is the time. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, moving on to our next segment. We're going to do some rapid-fire summer questions. All right, here we go. First one. What's your favorite condiment? Oh, easy. Nothing. Bread. Bread's not a condiment. <laughs> I don't like sauces. Continue. Alex, what's yours? Mayploy sweet chili sauce. Grew up on the stuff. Huh. Never heard of it. Now you have. My favorite is relish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> keep moving. Keep moving. Favorite grilled vegetable. Oh, probably like zucchini. It's a classic. Yeah, I'm with you on zucchini. So good. I was going to say pepper. Mm. Like sweet peppers. Ooh, nice. Pepper is grilled really well. Mm. Lake or ocean? Ocean. Always ocean. Ocean. Yeah. I think ocean too, but it's close. I spent time in both this summer and I really enjoyed them both, but I think ocean wins. I haven't really spent time in lakes. I'm just very much a beach girl. Mm. California living. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask these questions again in a year and see how we stand on them. Am I going to move to a lake? I don't think so. Well, maybe. Depends what postdocs you get. Uh, let's not talk about it. University of, of, of the lake. <laughs> University of the lake. I've heard good things. Such a cutting edge work. And the most important question of summer, watermelon or kumquat? What is a kumquat? It's like kind of a shriveled up orange thing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what a kumquat is? <laughs> okay. Definitely watermelon. And I actually have a fun fact about this. When I was eight or nine, I won $40 in a watermelon eating contest against a bunch of college guys. <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. So it was very, yeah, I was like very quick. 
I was able to very rapidly eat my watermelon and destroy all these college men, and I was very happy about it. Impressive. When I was in elementary school, I won a large jar of honey from a farmer's market by being able to recite the quadratic formula. Oh. Nice. Yeah, the guy behind the counter was having an argument with his daughter that nobody could would know the <laughs> quadratic formula, and I walked up, and sure enough, he gave me this big jar of honey for it. Lovely. When I was little, my mom won a basketball hoop from our local grocery store by entering her name in a raffle. So we just had this random basketball hoop in my backyard. Hmm. Anyways, fun facts. I mean, that could be actually useful. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was like you could lower the net. And so since I was really small, I'm still pretty small, but I was like extra small then. I could actually <laughs> sometimes make it. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we actually have to do some science today. That's not so bad. Back to work. At least we have a delicious-sounding summer-themed astrobite to start us off. Alex? <laughs> yes. So my astrobite is about something that I actually didn't do myself this summer, but that somebody listening probably did. It's called Blazing Hot Dogs at the Cosmic Barbecue by Olivia Cooper. I think it's hilarious that as the vegetarian on this podcast, you're the one giving this astrobite. <laughs> this is the most I will be talking about hot dogs. I will have talked about hot dogs in the past many years. The paper is by Tanio Diaz-Santos and others from this year, published just a few months ago. And there are three big hot dog facts that I'm going to cover that I think are absolutely amazing. So amazing hot dog fact number one. Hot dogs are some of the brightest objects in the universe. We're talking science, right? <laughs> we are talking science. So hot okay. dogs are, of course, because this is astrophysics, they're an acronym. Hot dogs are <laughs> hot dust obscured galaxies, or DOGs. They're a rare class of hyperluminous galaxies first discovered in the infrared with the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE. And the jargon is a little bit convoluted here. So hot dogs host quasars, which are a type of active galactic nucleus, which themselves are a type of black hole. <laughs> so in this case, the supermassive black holes hosted by hot dogs are in an extremely energetic phase of their lives in which large masses of inflowing dust and gas get accreted and some get shot back out to create this glowing disk of material. So the hot dog is the host galaxy of the quasar? Exactly. Got it. And what makes hot dogs so bright? That's a great question, and we'll get there. The important point is that they're heavily obscured by dust. So they're very bright in the infrared because okay. optical light from the AGN gets reprocessed and re-emitted in the IR from the dust and gas. And this brings us to amazing hot dog fact number two. Some hot dogs, and not many people know this, are over 10 billion years old. Whoa. This is exciting because these galaxies are significantly brighter than you'd expect just by looking at their surface densities of material. And because some are located at high redshift, they represent these oddballs that we can use to test our theories of galaxy evolution. Again, like you mentioned, try and figure out why they're so bright in the infrared. What makes their AGN become so active? How is it that they maintain this much dust for 10 billion years? That is also a phenomenal question. It again represents a challenge to our theories of galaxy evolution. You would expect over time for the dust and gas in this galaxy to be depleted. It seems like it's not. Mm -hmm. So the question is, where is this dust and gas coming from? Cool. To answer this question, the authors used the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, or ALMA, 
to construct spatially resolved maps of singly ionized carbon for seven hot dogs between a redshift of three and a redshift of 4.6. Still feels weird to call them hot dogs. I'm still trying to get used to it. Do you find <laughs> hot dogs at every redshift or are they only at certain ranges? That is also an awesome question. So there are a couple of hot dogs that have been discovered at lower red chips. The authors in this paper propose that their formation mechanism might be slightly different than these higher redshift hot dogs. Okay. So they constructed these singly ionized carbon maps. They found that the gas maps are incredibly diverse. So some have this ordered circular rotation to them and some have kind of complex disordered motion. And... The galaxies also have very high-velocity dispersions, so there's a large degree in variation in the velocity of the gas throughout each hot dog. And this gas could be potentially turbulated, you remember that word from a previous episode, <laughs> this gas could be turbulated by AGN outflows, but it's also possible that the turbulence is evidence of a hot dog actively merging with another galaxy. This brings us to the two potential theories for how hot dogs might form and how they get so bright. Companion galaxies have been found for around 70% of the hot dogs in this sample. So the galaxy merger scenario is pretty promising. But on the other hand, if you were having a, a big chaotic active merger, you shouldn't expect ordered circular motion, which you see in some of these hot dogs. So instead, for those systems, the authors propose that gas could be channeled along the cosmic web, funneled into the central galaxy of kind of a proto-cluster at high redshift when these clusters are still forming. And this agglomeration of dust and gas actively through these channels could potentially give it enough fuel for its star formation rate to spike and for its AGN activity to increase for a short period of time, giving us these hot dogs. Just to make sure I have it right, the two theories are continuous mergers keep replenishing the dust or there's some flowing of dust along the cosmic web into the intersections where the galaxies form that continues to replenish the dust that way dust and gas exactly yes okay but if that's true then wouldn't we expect that to be true for every galaxy that it would have a lot more dust than it does so they're arguing that this would only be the case for the central galaxy of a proto cluster that these kind of peripheral galaxies oh. in the cluster don't have the dust and gas collecting onto them to the same extent that you would for the one central major galaxy that then becomes the largest galaxy in a cluster at lower ridges. Got it. And you mentioned the caveat related to circular motion for the first of these hypotheses. Is there a caveat for the second one where something doesn't work out or could it explain all of the hot dogs? Yeah, that's a great question. And this actually brings me to my final really amazing hot dog fact number three. <laughs> so if you'd expect infalling of dust and gas along these filaments of the cosmic web onto the central galaxy in the protocluster, this is something that you should expect as a cluster is actively forming. So this is something that should be specific to higher redshifts. And once the cluster is formed, you mm -hmm. might not have the same kind of infall of gas. And so this type of formation mechanism might not explain the lower redshift objects as well as the higher redshift objects. So that's the caveat there. But my amazing hot dog fact number three, the authors propose that hot dogs aren't just these fixed objects that are born as hot dogs and die as hot dogs, but hot dog is a state of being. <laughs> <laughs> Other galaxies can become hot dogs, and hot dogs can stop being hot dogs for a bit and then return to their 
kind of hot dog state mm. later on as wow. material starts inflowing again. This is pretty deep. That's a really interesting idea. It's philosophical. If you okay. Think about yeah, it. yeah. I'm gonna have to dwell on this more. <laughs> the hot dog phase. <laughs> You've set up the situation pretty well. There are two competing theories, both pretty good, both have problems. And how can you distinguish between the two? Awesome question. So the novel aspects of this paper were in proposing the second theory, the inflow of gas and the potential observational result that you might expect a single galaxy to go hot dog multiple times instead of just one object to be a hot dog. Of course, you would need tons of astrophysical time of observation to be able to see a galaxy stop being a hot dog and start becoming a hot dog again. And so in general, it's incredibly hard to distinguish between those two theories. And the authors just kind of end it by saying that they'll need deeper observations of a statistical sample of hot dogs, as you might expect, with ALMA or potentially with the James Webb Space Telescope or JWST to better compare to cosmological simulations for what you might expect for if the inflowing gas in a protocluster theory is the correct one. So in conclusion, we need more uh, ketchup and mustard before we can eat these hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. We took an astro bite out of a hot dog. I don't know. There's something there. <laughs> it sounds like an astro meal to me. <laughs> 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 <I'm sorry. laughs> Alex, thanks for bringing us that great summer hot dog bite. Yes, thank you. Very thematic. You got it. And now it's time for our special summer space sound segment. Woo! Alliteration. now listeners as you know before we went on break we kept hyping our sonification competition for 2021 this was our first effort to get everyone listening to try sonification for yourself (laughs) and see all the wonderful things you could do with it and indeed we got very many thoughtful submissions so thank you and now it's finally time to announce the winners can we get a drum roll please The winner of our sonification competition for 2021, the first ever Astro Soundbite sonification competition, was Misty Bentz for her sonification fantasy on active galaxies. This was a flute trio for flute choir ensembles. I'll admit I am a slightly biased audience because I play the flute, (laughs) but it was... Oh yeah, that doesn't come through at all. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really lovely, and so you're going to get to hear more about that in the next segment. Um, But we'd also like to extend a huge congratulations to our runner-up, Tharindu Jayasinga, for his sonification, The Loudest Heartbeat Star, which was also amazing. Mm -hmm. So keep an ear out for that next episode. But everyone who submitted did a great job. There was not a bad submission we received, and we were very impressed and enjoyed listening to all of them. So thank you for those who participated. Thank you. I just thought it was really amazing to see the creativity with the submissions, the way that different sounds were applied to different astrophysical data sets. It's just so exciting to see people actually apply the things that we had talked about for so long. So thank you so much. It was really thrilling for us to listen to. We sat down with Misty to learn more about the astrophysical system behind her sonification and exactly how she created it. Take a listen. We are joined by Misty Bentz, a professor of physics and astronomy at Georgia State University. Hi, Misty, and welcome to Astro Soundbites. Hello, thank you for having me. 
you are the esteemed winner of our 2021 <laughs> sonification competition. Congratulations. 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 Thank you so much. <laughs> so tell us, what data did you choose to sonify? I chose some data from my postdoctoral position, which admittedly was quite a while ago at this <laughs> point. Um, so I work on supermassive black holes that are actively accreting in the centers of nearby galaxies. So not quasars at high redshift, but relatively nearby galaxies. And um, in particular, I work on black hole mass measurements. And one of the methods that I use is called reverberation mapping. And the way that it works is by monitoring the spectra, um, the, both the continuum flux and the broad emission lines that are emitted from really hot superheated gas that's close around the accreting black hole. And then we watch for variations in the flux level and how those variations are echoed at different places within the gas. And so we're looking for light echoes on the scale of about the size of the solar system in the centers of galaxies around supermassive black holes that have masses of a million to a billion times the mass of the sun. And you know these black holes are at something like 100 million light years away from us. And those light echoes tell us about the size and structure of that gas around the black hole. And then from that, we can use some simple gravitational laws to say, all right, if the gas is this far away and it's moving this fast and it's orbiting around the black hole, then what's the mass of the black hole? Um, and so I took some light curves that we uh, created from those spectra where you see the flux going up and down with time. And I just said, huh, what if I take those and make them music notes on a staff and then play them instead? And so that was how I sonified my data. Excellent. The reverberations you're talking about, this is light reflecting off of different parts of the galaxy? So this is light that is um, photoionizing gas at different sort of distances from the, the black hole. And so uh, you have a lot of light emitted from the accretion disk, which is very close in. And it really blasts the nearby gas with a lot of ionizing radiation. And so you get recombination lines and emission lines from very highly ionized species pretty close in. And then as you go further out in the gas, the gas gets a bit more neutral. And so then you start getting like hydrogen recombination lines further out. So one of the emission lines that I study most is the hydrogen beta emission line in sort of the green part of the visible spectrum. Is this a common practice for measuring the mass of black holes? And how many black holes have we been able to do this for? I mean, I commonly use it, but I don't think that means it's become more common. So my PhD advisor worked uh, very hard in sort of putting the foundation for this field. Um, and then I have sort of carried on doing that work and extending it to a wider range of objects. Um, and then several other groups have started getting involved. And so it is more common now than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago. There's like four different groups around the world that are actively working in this area now. Sure. Um, and some of those groups come and go. Um, but we have black hole masses from reverberation mapping for, I think, about 120 galaxies at this point. Um, and some of those are at higher redshift now, um, and that comes from using, for example, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Um, they, their spectrograph has fibers where you can put them on thousands of objects at the same time. And so they have actually done some reverberation mapping with fibers on higher redshift quasars. 
And then they just look at those fields over and over and over and over again over the course of a year to look for the light echoes in their spectra. So the data for the sonification, is that from SDSS then? It is not. It is from Lick Observatory. So the project was called LAMP, um, which is the Lick AGN Monitoring Project. And so instead of having a multiplex spectrograph, we had a long slit spectrograph and we looked at the same actively accreting black holes night after night after night after night after night for three months in a row. And we had groups of people that rotated it off on and off the mountain to actually do the observing. Um, but yeah, it gets to be a bit repetitive, but you kind of need that in order to be able to track the changes in the light curve as they're occurring. Got it. And is this particular sonification looking at one system then, or is it looking at several systems? Yeah, so um, I, I did both. So I looked at each system individually, and I actually created a little musical piece that I call Fantasy on Active Galaxies um, that has sheet music for four of the objects in our sample. And so each one is a movement in the overall piece. Um, and fantasy is a musical term that sort of allows for more of a free form style of a piece that you put together. This is why I chose that particular title. Um, and so each object has three different parts um, in its music. And the first part is the continuum variation going up and down with time. And the second part is the hydrogen beta emission line um, going up and down with time, but it since it's an echo, it's delayed from what the continuum is doing, and it's a little bit um, more smeared out as well. And then the third part is the hydrogen alpha emission line, which is delayed even more from the H beta emission line and also goes up and down with time. So it's a little bit in the style of a round where you hear first mm. one part and then another part comes in and sort of echoes it and then another part. Um, and since I play the flute, and at the time I was playing in a flute choir, which is what it sounds like, it's a choir of flutes. Uh, I wrote the parts for different members of the flute family. And so I have the continuum played by a piccolo, which is the really high pitched, tiny flute you hear in a marching band. Um, and then the H beta emission part is played by just your regular flute. And then the H alpha emission line part is played by either an alto or, or a bass flute, which are, they're very long, they're lower in tone. So, so you get some diverse voices as well. Now we're going to play your winning submission and, and try to listen for exactly what you described. So piccolo being the continuum emissions will peak first, that's the highest flute. Then the, the regular flute will be a little bit broader, a little bit after, then the lower flute, the bass, will be even later and even broader. Have I summarized correctly? Yeah. Great. So I'm going to share my audio. We'll take a listen and see if we can pick out from among the, the great sounds that specific scientific result. Thank you. 
We should point out that Misty, you produced a great visual representation of the sonification, though we didn't expect that, didn't consider that in the competition. It is really nice to see, and we will make sure that goes up on the website so listeners can follow it. But after your description of what to listen for, I definitely found it more enjoyable than when I had listened before without as much background. So that really stood out. What I love about that sonification, I personally, I feel like it's easy to lose yourself in it. So I feel like there were a couple of times throughout listening to it where I was like, wait, I'm supposed to be listening for things because it's easy to just, it just sounds really nice. Right. It's just really pleasant to listen to. I'm curious, did you actually play this with your flute choir? I did actually. We had a world premiere of Fantasy on Active Galaxies at the Irvine Observatory. A teeny tiny little observatory on the campus, like in a field. I think they've knocked down the field and built houses there now, so I don't think it exists anymore. Um, But the flute choir, we actually would play concerts because it gave us something to practice for. And so we do like holiday Mm -hmm. concerts, sometimes at the mall and, you know, random things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, We actually put together a space themed concert and we played a movement from the planets that had been, you know, rewritten for flute choir. And then we premiered my piece also. And so we did actually play it. Um, And I put together, I made it a multimedia experience by putting together a slideshow of cool astronomy pictures as well to show along with the different pieces that we were playing. So it has actually been performed. um, And I was told um, a couple of years ago, actually, that the flute choir is still playing. It's got a different membership now Mm -hmm. because people come and go. Um, And I'm no longer in California. I'm in Georgia. Uh, but they actually did play my piece again at another concert. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> the legacy lives on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing reverberation mapping to the people, to the masses. <laughs> That's right. Did you use any specialized software to write this, or did you just do it all yourself, writing the score by hand? Yeah, so I actually wrote a Perl script that would take the, the flux measurements and, and convert them to notes on a staff um, by sort of giving it some rules about how far apart the, the flux measurements had to be spaced in order to land on a specific note. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I took the output notes and I had to hand plot them into a digital sheet music. I think I found something free. It was like finale notepad or something like that where you can just you know point and click and put notes on a staff and then it lets you play your music as a midi file after you've put it on there and so that was how I created it it was a lot of little finicky things but I just sort of took some skills I had from research and some stuff I found on the internet and made it all work together so you were doing sonification before it was cool yeah (laughs) well before it was cool I I will say that I um, included this as the very last slide in my job talk that got me the job at GSU where I'm a professor now, and I think it caught some attention. So I would say the effort was worth it. Um, in addition to the fact that I've now won a contest. So that's one. <laughs> <laughs> Put that in your next talk. <laughs> one of the things that we discussed in our uh, episode on sonification was the choice between making a very melodic, harmonious sounding piece and having it just true to the data, even if it doesn't sound great. And we recognize that they could be used in different contexts, but here you made yours in harmonious. Do you think 
that's the better choice for all sonifications? Where, where do you feel that would work best? I think in this case, it actually worked better because people tend to think of um, turning data into sound as, you know, it's going to give you some weird, spacey, odd thing. And this captures your attention because it's not what you expect when you listen to it. Um, the fact that it actually kind of sounds pleasant and nice instead of weird and spacey sort of confronts some biases that people might have or some expectations. Uh, which I'm all about doing because as one of the very few now senior women in this field, I find that my students, for example, have a lot of expectations about what their teacher is going to look like or be like before I walk into the room. I just go about confronting those expectations in all sorts of ways that I possibly can. So I think this fits well with the kind of work that I do and with the way that I, I approach teaching and sharing information um, not just with my students, but with my colleagues and also with the wider public. I was curious, do you have any recommendations for astronomers who are just getting started in sonification? Yeah, just try it and see what you get. <laughs> I have no idea what mine was going to sound like. And it does sound kind of, you know, nicer than you would expect. And that wasn't through a lot of effort on my part. I just picked a key signature and then made the notes fit within the range of the instrument that was supposed to be playing it. And then made some choices about when to hold a note longer versus allow a gap because there are mm. gaps in the light curve. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's held and sometimes it's a gap. Um, but when I played it, I was surprised that it sounded as nice as it did. So yeah, just play around with stuff and, and see what you get. And then if you like it, share it with people because someone else might like it too. The choice of a key signature is an interesting one, because when we were first doing our episode on sonification and I was sonifying some data for the first time, I decided to just do it chromatically. And it kind of sounded like a mess. And that was kind of good because <laughs> the data is really noisy. So I like that. Um, here, I don't. I think you have to choose a, a key. Otherwise, it's not going to work at all. So that's an interesting thing that people, especially if they're not musicians, might not realize right off the bat that can make a huge difference in the quality of the final product. Right. Yes. And especially since my intention was to put something together that might be played by people on instruments, choosing a key mm -hmm. signature also makes it more accessible especially for a group, like a community group that's performing. If you're giving this to professionals in the symphony, you can give them whatever you want. But if you're giving it to your friends that you get together and play with occasionally, you know, giving them some simpler music where it has some easier rules to follow is going to make things more pleasant for everybody. Misty, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we really enjoyed your piece. Congratulations on winning the competition, and hopefully you'll produce some more sonifications in the future that we can play on the show. Thank you so much again for having me and for hosting the contest and for choosing me as the winner of your contest. <laughs> <laughs> Will, can you play the sound again to kind of play us out? I'd love to hear it one more time. Sure.
That's so cool. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Thanks again for all the incredible entries we received. We hope your experiences making sonifications of your data excited you about this avenue for outreach as much as it did us. And now it is time to move along to our second summer-themed astrobite from Milena. Yes, so my astrobite is all about traveling in the astrophysical sense. <laughs> and so this astrobite is called Super Jupiter's Be Like, I'm Getting Out of Here. This disc is too eccentric by Sabina Sagenbayeva <laughs> about a paper by Dempsey et al. 2021. I really just said that on the air. Yeah, wait, what was it called again? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so this astrobite is all about planets that are traveling around, or in astronomical terms, migrating within their natal protoplanetary disks. So planets form in disks, but they don't necessarily stay at the same orbits where they initially formed. Their surrounding gas disks, before they dissipate, can interact with the planets and induce a torque that can either push the planets inwards or outwards in the disk. What kind of timescales does this take, typically? This is something that, so planet formation in general takes place over probably between 1 and 10 million years, and so the migration is something that would have to happen before the disk dissipates in most of these cases, um, so within that general timescale. So not being able to observe the evolution of a system over 10 million years, how do we know that these planets are migrating? Yeah, that's a great point. We can't observe this directly because it takes, well, first of all, it takes a long time for planets on wide orbits to move, and it's pretty hard to directly observe planets embedded in disks as well. But we can study this scenario based on just the underlying physics that we know happens in disks. So we can actually just simulate the disks and understand what would happen. And this is actually something that we think happened in the solar system. So it's not kind of out of nowhere that we think this happens in extrasolar systems as well. So in the solar system, there's this whole formation model called the Nice model where Jupiter and Saturn and also Uranus and Neptune move around pretty substantially. And that's kind of the way that we explain how all of the different minor planet populations within the solar system got to where they are, um, why certain populations look like other populations, it's because Jupiter kind of tossed them into different places as it moved around. Do planets prefer to travel to summer beach destinations <laughs> or winter ski resorts? <laughs> um, that is a great question. Is it? <laughs> is it though? <laughs> By, by which, of course, I mean in toward the sun or out toward the edge of the solar yes. system. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I was thinking about obliquities when you said that. And I was like, huh, it depends on how it's tilted because that's how Earth seasons are formed. But more... Part one of our eight-part episode on obliquities. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Get hyped. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this is actually going to be something that depends on the planet, though, whether it wants to go inwards or outwards. Um, so there are a couple of different regimes of migration that happened, and in this particular astrobite we're going to be talking about type 2, which is where we have relatively high mass planets, where they're actually able to open up a gap in the disk. And in previous studies of type 2 migration, authors have kind of looked at what happens when you just have the planet in a disk, let the simulation run for a while, and then see where it goes. And generally for smaller planets, they tend to migrate inwards. 
but what these authors are interested in is looking at how type 2 migration occurs for planets that are more massive than Jupiter. So they refer to them here as super Jupiter planets, and they're massive enough that they can actually excite the eccentricity of the disk itself. So protoplanetary disks with these very massive planets tend to become more elliptical rather than circular. Oh, interesting. So that makes them kind of an interesting group because they they aren't going to have all of the same torques that you would get for just a circular disk. Um, and what these authors wanted to figure out is where that transition actually happens and what conditions you need to get these more eccentric disks. And something that happens when you get these more eccentric disks is you actually tend to get the planets to migrate outwards. So it's this completely different regime where instead of pu being pushed inwards by the disk, the torques that you get from the eccentric disk actually will push it outwards instead. Is that only because these are really large planets? The reason the disk is eccentric in the first place is because they're large planets. So that's okay. why the size of the planet comes in here. Got it. Do we know anything about how common super Jupiters are such that we could make a prediction on how common this influence on the disk is observable? To some extent. So there have definitely been directly imaged planets that are larger than Jupiter's mass. So super Jupiter type planets that have been detected. Uh, direct imaging surveys tend to find a lot fewer planets than some of the other methods like transits. So these planets aren't necessarily all that common, uh, but they do exist. There are certainly actual observational examples of something that might look like this. And high-mass planets, like the ones that were studied in this work, excite strongly non-linear waves that travel through the disk before damping, and so hmm. that affects the disk surface density profile. But because these waves are non-linear, it's really difficult to come up with an analytical theory for how the disk and the planet interact in this regime. So because of that, the authors ran these two-dimensional hydrodynamical simulations with the Fargo 3D code to study these disks with a wide range of viscosities, aspect ratios, so ratios of the disk's radius versus its scale height, and planet-to-disk mass ratios. So these are all values that are directly going to affect the torque that the planet feels. And the authors were able to show with these simulations that the transition from inward to outward migration occurs when the disk becomes eccentric again, and that this actually tends to happen for planets that are about two Jupiter masses or larger for their fiducial disk models. So there are all these caveats of you know, assuming a particular viscosity, etc. Um, but this is mm. sort of a general rule of thumb, about two Jupiter masses is where this happens. Ultimately, what this will hopefully be able to do, these types of models, is to resolve the formation mechanisms of, again, these directly image type planets that orbit very far from their stars. So what this study is actually saying is that it's possible that those planets formed through pebble accretion and then migrated outwards as opposed to this disk instability idea that is often invoked to explain why you get mm -hmm. these enormous planets that are so far from their stars. Yeah, so this seems like a mainly theory paper, but are there any observations they could take that would allow them to pin down if there are specific systems where they can identify that this mechanism actually happened? Yeah, I mean, the best thing that comes to mind to me is maybe looking for eccentric disks and actually trying to find what types of planets exist in those. So I'm not 100% sure if this has been done for protoplanetary disks, but I know certainly for debris disks, eccentric disks have been found, and those are often kind of thought of as maybe an indicator that there might be a planet embedded in that disk that's causing it to be eccentric. 
And so you can certainly look at this at later stages. It might be tricky at earlier stages because, again, with a protoplanetary disk, there's just a lot of stuff there that's blocking right. the way. Mm -hmm. right. um, but we have certainly seen planets embedded in disks before, so it's not... It's, I don't know that it would be impossible to do. So it would be really cool if we actually did get a nice image of an eccentric disk with a giant planet in it. And I don't think that would necessarily be impossible. It's just a matter of whether we have the right systems relatively nearby that we can see with the resolution that we have. Got it. Melina, thank you for your travel-themed astrobite. Yeah, thanks, Melina. Yeah, of course. And now we will move along to our one-sentence summaries. Alex, you want to go first? One person's trash is another person's treasure, and in this case, seven dusty old hot dogs might just be the key to connecting the growth of black holes to the galaxies that host them. That's pretty good. Thank you. What about you, Melina? Planets can migrate either inwards or outwards in disks, and when they get massive enough, that is at least about two Jupiter masses, substantially more massive than me, they cause their disk <laughs> to become eccentric and can migrate outwards. <laughs> Very nice. So now we come to our discussion, and this might be a little tricky because we have some hot dogs galaxies and a theory paper on migrating massive planets. So the truth is these are not connected really scientifically at all. <laughs> with, with the one added caveat, I feel like I've been saying caveat a lot this episode, with the one added <laughs> caveat that my astrobite was all about dust observations that make hot dogs bright in the infrared and Milena, you were talking about how dust is going to make your observations harder whereas in mine it's like the linchpin to what makes these systems interesting hmm. okay very nice that's a that's a pretty good connection one of the ones i could think of is these are both areas of study of very high interest active galactic nuclei is a very hotly funded exciting area because of supermassive black holes and of course, planet evolution, because of exoplanets, search for extraterrestrial life, there's a lot of interest in that area too. And yet, we found topics within these great subjects where so little is actually known about what's going on. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I would say that planet formation in general, there's a lot that isn't known. Because it's, it's just really hard to directly observe it. So a lot of what is being done is sort of roundabout, like trying to do simulations, but you don't necessarily know what all of these different parameters that go into your simulations should be. Like, how do you know what the alpha viscosity parameter is? Could be lots of things. <laughs> and so uh, mm -hmm. it it's a lot of just sort of seeing what are the possibilities and then what actually matches with the observations that we've seen. Uh, but it would be nice if we could just directly see oh, this is a planet that is forming. Now we understand how planets form, but it's a lot more difficult than that and so doing a lot of roundabout work to try to figure it out using all of the edge pieces of the puzzle and working inwards and actually now that i think about it my astrobite was using cosmological simulations to provide a potential explanation for the formation of these systems that we can only observe at one instance in time whereas if we run some cosmological analysis we can fast forward through millions and billions of years and potentially see how these systems might evolve. It seems like the same was done for your astrobite, Melina. Yeah. I think that's very true, where we only have a couple of snapshots that are very specific examples that we can actually compare with. So the simulations are just trying to fill in all the gaps of every other snapshot in time that we're not able to see. 
Yeah, I think that's the real advantage of theory and simulation is that you can then fast forward and see for one particular system, 10 billion years in the future, what would you expect it to look like and what are potential things you could look for out in the field that would confirm that that's actually what's going on. Right. Of course, the challenge with simulation, especially when you have a high dimensionality parameter space, is you can end up in sort of the wrong area of your parameter space, changing the wrong variables and miss an important underlying physical result because there are very few observations to constrain your data. So it's it's a challenge. I mean, obviously, there's this simulation versus observation back and forth is one of the defining characteristics of astronomy. And of science in general. You'll find that in lots of other subfields. Mm-hmm. And that concludes episode 40, Space Summer Surprise. We are back with an exciting season of new content. We have some great plans in the works. We're going to be going new places, trying new things, <laughs> bringing you new interviews. Eating hot dogs. Not, not Alex. Maybe for us, <laughs> but not for you. <laughs> but if you're a new listener, thank you for joining us. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or third-party podcasting apps. And if you're returning, we're in the same place as always. So tell your friends to listen, to follow us on Twitter, and to write us if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Cosmos.